Then they remembered that these things were written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now some among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And God, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thanks, Glenn. We're good. Yeah, we're fine. So, uh, I used to say uh, in California when I were pa- pastors at Living Hope Christian Fellowship, I used to say we're not the slick church. So, uh, I always take pride in that, not being too slick. So, we ran out of bread a couple of weeks ago, and I wasn't here last week, and I made sure I told Jen, I said, bring some bread for, for communion last Sunday, and she did. And then I forgot to bring some this morning. So, uh, no, it was on me, Jen, on me. You're, no, you're good. You did your job. Jen, your job was to get, was there bread here last week, people? You did your job, all right? You did your job. All right, so I want to talk uh, about Jesus' entry. I don't know if you've ever heard this passage preached any time except the week before Easter. Uh, If you grew up in a liturgical church, obviously this is referenced to Palm Sunday, the last week of Jesus, but we're kind of going through the Gospel of John, and so... Uh, we're going to preach this. Uh, we're just going to preach this in the beautiful spring in the Pacific Northwest. I do want to let you people know that this is normal spring weather for the rest of the country. Um, so, uh, I, I contend that it's not hot till it's over 95. But uh, but there are some who would debate me on that, right? So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and uh, it says that the crowds who were with him. Uh, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, were bearing witness to him. And then there, was, there were crowds coming out of Jerusalem who had heard about this, and they were coming out to meet him. And so it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of, it, it, it's kind of like a convergence of these two crowds coming together, and then there's this big explosion, this big celebration as Jesus enters Jerusalem. And there's at least a couple of kind of people here. Uh, first of all, there are those who kind of seek sensationalism. And they, are, they will always be with us. Uh, those who seek sensationalism, who seek, uh, you know, they, i tell you what, I, I have benefited a lot from different conferences and revivals and different things that have gone on, and, and I'm not one to, to knock that. But there is, there is something I've noticed about people who kind of just chase, not so much God, but chase the latest, the newest, the most sensational thing. And uh, there's almost this attitude that if something is sensational, it's spiritual. And that's just not true, necessarily. Um, That's just not always the case. That there are things that are, uh, there are things that are sensational that don't necessarily bear witness to God. They just bear witness to the people who are proclaiming them. And uh, and so we want to bear witness to God. And what God is doing. Signs and wonders bear witness to God, not to the signs and wonders themselves, or not to the event. 
And I will tell you something else, that people who tend to run after sensationalism also tend to be fickle. We live in a, very, in a culture that is um, burdened with fickleness. Richard Foster in his great book, Celebration of Discipline, says, In a world of fast food and instant gratification, the crying need of the culture is not for more intelligent people, not for more gifted people, but for more deep people. We need people whose yes is yes and no is no. If you look at the news, uh, how is it that whatever president we have, their approval rating goes up and down so dramatically? Simply this. If gas prices go up, we don't like the guy anymore. And if gas prices go down, he's our hero. Well, that's ridiculous. That speaks of people without convictions. And, and, and we live in a culture of people without convictions. We live in a culture of people who are fickle. Even in Christian culture. Uh, I was meeting with another pastor the other day, and we were talking about uh, people hopping from one church to the next, and and, uh, and, and, you know, we agree that sometimes that's just, the, that's just bad leadership on the part of churches. But other times it's just people, people just have, the, they have an irres- they have an inability to resolve conflict. And so when conflict arises, instead of resolve it, just run. Or, you know, again, their ears are tickled. The new and best and exciting is over there. But I really believe that fickleness gets us nowhere. In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the definitions of wicked in Hebrew is a ship without an anchor. And a ship without an anchor is a ship that is tossed around by what? The wind, the waves, and the tide. It has no mooring, no grounding. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's, it's a good habit to read your Bible on a daily basis is if you read your Bible on a daily basis, even if you don't get rhema word, even if you don't get incredible revelation, and sometimes you do, but even if you just read your Bible, ba 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 what's happening is a worldview or the logos word of God is being implanted in you. And, and there's a solidity that takes place in people like that. Convictions grow in people like that. A solidness, so that they will not, what does the Bible say? They will not be shaken. And the same people, many of the same people, who were shouting out on, the, on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were the same people a week later who were shouting out what? Crucify him. Crucify him. His approval ratings went down in a week. He cleared out the temple, that hacked some people off. Uh, the Pharisees knew how to uh, work the crowd. He didn't meet their expectations. A week later, the same crowd is saying, crucify him. There are others who aren't fickle, but who are looking for the Messiah, and who believe Jesus may be the Messiah, but their preconceived notions of what the Messiah is going to look like and do blinds them to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me explain. There are two streams of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. There are two streams that talk about the Messiah, and they seem very incongruent with one another. 
One stream talks about this victorious king who's going to come in and establish Jerusalem as this wonderful kingdom, and Jerusalem and Israel are going to be the big dogs on the block, and all of God's enemies are going to be crushed, and it's going to be an era of peace and prosperity for God's people. A king like David. We're going to kick butt on the Philistines. In this case, it's now the Romans. Then there's another messianic prophetic stream that talks about a suffering servant. Somebody who is meek and humble. Somebody who is beaten and despised and rejected. Somebody who is pierced and, and, and whipped and suffers for many. And it just seems like, right, those two pictures don't fit together. Now, if you're an oppressed people, if you've been oppressed by the Babylonians, by the, uh, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Medes, uh, by the um, Greeks, by the Romans, if you've been oppressed for the last, not 20 years, 30 years, but 500 years, which Messiah are you looking for? The one who's going to get beat up or the one who's going to beat up your enemies? You're going to look for the one who's going to beat up your enemies. And so Jesus is coming into town, and the Jews are looking for somebody who will raise an army and defeat the Romans. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 with uh, five loaves and two fish? Remember that miracle? It says after that miracle that immediately the people wanted to make him king. Why did they want to make him king? Because he could produce food. Because food is the key to victory in warfare, especially in siege warfare which is how wars were fought back in that era. The Romans would encamp around a city, and they would say, basically, we're going to stay here, we're going to camp around this city until you get hungry enough to come out and fight us. And when the supplies in the city would run low, the people would finally become so desperate, they'd come out and fight the Romans, the Romans would kill them. And so the Roman, their army was dependent upon a supply of steady food coming in to keep the camp going, right? That's, mar- that's around the city. And the city was dependent upon their sources of food and water inside the city to, st- to, to, to wait out the Romans. Now, what happens if you have a guy who can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people? Well, Romans, camp as long as you want. We have an endless supply of food. Or if we're the army that is surrounding a city, we have a great advantage. We can produce food right here. We don't need a supply line, and we don't need to protect that supply line, and we don't need food coming in from hundreds of miles away. Rome doesn't need to supply our army with food. We've got this guy. That's why they wanted to make him king, because he would give them military victory. Jesus comes into Jerusalem very much announcing that he's the Messiah. He's fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9, that says, your king comes into you riding on a colt, riding on an ass. He's on a donkey. Here's the significance of that. When a king came into a city on a horse, he was coming in war. A horse was a war animal. A donkey, when a king came to you riding on a donkey, he was coming in peace. And so Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that says he's the Messiah, but but he's doing it in a way that is counter to the expectations of the people. No wonder a week later they wanted to kill him. 
You're, you, you're proclaiming to the Messiah, but you're not the Messiah I want. I want a Messiah who's going to defeat the Romans. But Jesus comes in instead. He's the Messiah who is the Prince of Peace. Now, what, what about those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament of this glorious kingdom and this, this, uh, this rulership that will, that will never end? Well, dear ones, it is happening now. It is ever increasing on the earth. Of the increase of his kingdom and his government, there will be no end. Let me tell you what's happening to that kingdom. The day you were born again, the day you gave your life to Christ, that kingdom advanced another step. And right now as we speak, it's advancing in China, it's advancing in Indonesia, it's advancing in Africa, it's advancing in South America, it's even advancing in Europe and places in America. Every place that king is welcomed, that kingdom advances until one day that kingdom will be visible in all the world. And those messianic prophecies are coming true in our lifetime before our very eyes if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. But Jesus, the first prophecies he fulfills is as suffering servant. He comes to Jerusalem not to conquer but to die. And yet in his death he conquers. He comes not as the king of war, but as the prince of peace. And he establishes peace between God and man. And he establishes peace between men and women here on earth. Goodwill and peace. Let me tell you something. You might think, well, man, I don't see a lot of peace. I see wars and rumors of wars. That's true. But I also tell you this. The world is a much more peaceful place 2,000 years after Jesus than it was 2,000 years ago. Far a far smaller percentage of people are murdered. A, false, a far smaller percentage of people are put to death politically. A far smaller percentage of people die in wars than ever before. You think, well, Kevin, don't you watch the news? I do watch the news. But I also can count. There's 7.7 billion people in the world. His kingdom is advancing. He is the prince of peace. You have peace with God, and then you begin to have peace with one another. As we learn to forgive and relate, his messiahship is taking hold. And he is also a conquering king. Lest you think all he did in Jerusalem was suffer and die, you forget Easter Sunday. He rose from the dead. And his resurrection, his, his death and resurrection are, are profound acts of war. They're profound acts of violence. In his death, he is, he's, he's, he's kind of like an ambush in a way. He's, he's, he's just is taking evil into himself and, sw and inviting it. Come, nail me to the cross. Put me up here. And he takes it into himself and he swallows it and he buries it in a grave, but it cannot hold him. And on the third day, he rises victoriously and a new life kind of emerges on earth. A resurrection life emerges on earth. Amen. Thank you. And it's not victory over the Romans, though in a short historical time, historically speaking, in 400 years, the Roman Empire was conquered by this kingdom. Daniel prophesied it, didn't he? 
Daniel prophesied the statue of the, 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 the statue in Daniel and, and, the, and the four kingdoms. And then the small little insignificant stone that rolled and, be, and, and it crushed these four kingdoms and grew into a mighty mountain. And it never stopped growing. Talking about this messianic kingdom of Jesus. And it was there on that cross and in that resurrection that that, that, that that stone struck its fatal blow against all the kingdoms of this world that raises that rise up against the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And so he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he didn't he's, he defeated bigger enemies than the Roman Empire. He defeated sin. He defeated sin. Dear ones, the consequences of sin is death. And he brought life. He defeated the consequences of sin. You are not under judgment. You are not under wrath. You are under the mercy. I love that phrase, under the mercy. Uh, Sheldon Vanuken in his book, uh, Severe Mercy, had a correspondence with C.S. Lewis that led him to Christ. And, uh, and, and he signs his letters to C.S. Lewis. Always, he always signs his letters, under the mercy under the mercy. Psalm 91 says, where can I go from his presence? You are under the mercy. You say, but pastor, I mess up. You're under the mercy. Every week we take communion here. What does communion proclaim to us? You are under the mercy. You are freed from the consequences of sin. And not only are you freed from the consequences of sin, you're also freed from the power of sin. What does that mean? Before you had Christ, you had no choice. You were going to sin. Now you have a choice. You don't have to sin anymore. People say, well, people, people say this phrase all the time. Well, nobody's perfect. Nobody can be perfect in this life. Maybe. But I see nowhere in the Bible where it says that. I see it says that all men are sinners. I see John say that all men sin, but I also say that God wants to sanctify us fully. Dear ones, I know I'm not perfect, but maybe the day before I'll die I get there. Or maybe next week. The point is, if the power of God lives in me and the power of God lives in you, we have power against sin. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10? No temptation has overcome us, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted, but beyond, beyond what we are able. But he will send help. I'm not saying that you don't sin. I'm just saying you don't have to. You're not a slave anymore. It was amazing after the Civil War and the slaves were officially freed for almost a hundred years people continued to live like slaves. Because of racial oppression but also because of a mindset. A mindset that said I am less than. I think the reasons we continue to sin is because we still live with a dead man's mindset. But Christ has declared us free and he has given us power. I mean, after all, he is called the Holy Spirit, right? He's not called the sometimes I continue to sin spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit because he intends 
us to be holy. God will complete the work that he has begun in us. Now, we, when we read that verse in Philippians, we say, yes, in heaven. But the verse doesn't say that necessarily. I'm not arguing that you'll, be compl- you'll get completed in heaven. I'm just saying, I think it's possible to be completed before that. It just seems, it seems to me that we have been, our identity has been transferred from sinners to saints who sometimes sin. But don't have to. You're not compelled to anymore. You're not locked into it. Jesus had victory over sin. He had victory over death. He rose from the dead, and so will you. You will not die. You will live eternally. Uh, My grandson yesterday, Noah, was wearing a a T-shirt that said, The best is yet to come. That is true for every Christian, and every day that is true throughout all eternity. Dear ones, the best is yet to come. If you're a Cubs fan, that's good news. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Don't think for a minute that you have lived out your glory days. Um, As I get older, you know, I I realize that I I tried so hard to be an athlete when I was young. And God never, when God made me, he didn't make a great athlete. Um, That wasn't the prime deal. That wasn't the prime calling on my life. But I tried so hard because I, I just, that, that's where I got, that's where I connected with my dad and, you know, every boy wants to connect with his dad and I thought that's where I would connect with girls. I realize now should have been a musician. I, I, I didn't get it. I thought being a good athlete would get the girls and then I saw this kid in our high school named Kelly Stevens who played the guitar Dang, why didn't I practice the piano more? Out there shooting all those baskets. But God didn't, I don't even know where I was going with this. Oh, yeah. And so I'm 56 now. And as an athlete, my glory days were never that glorious, but they are well behind me. The best is not yet to come, athletically, for me. All right? I don't have a comeback coming. They, they have not made steroids strong enough to bring a resurgence into my athletic career. But the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And I believe that. I, I, I'm believing that for my life, not just eternally. I believe that my best years in this world are ahead of me, not behind me. The best is yet to come. Believe it. He has victory over sin. He has victory over death. Death will not defeat you. Death is an enemy, but it will not defeat you. You will rise. And in fact, your body will cease, but your consciousness will not. I, I, I don't know how it all works, But to depart from this life is to be with Christ. And then there is the resurrection of our bodies and we get our resurrected bodies. But we're still alive in that in-between time after we die, before we get our resurrected bodies and we're with Christ. And it is all going to be good. And you need not fear death anymore. 
I, 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 I've ministered besides a lot of, beside a lot of bedsides where people were breathing their last. And I say the same thing almost every time. I say, take the hand of Jesus. Reach out and take the hand of Jesus. He's this close to you. He's this close to you. Death is defeated. It's no longer your enemy. It's an enemy of the human race. It's not a good thing. If death were a good thing, God's answer to it would not be resurrection. But it's a defeated enemy. And the final enemy that he defeated is Satan. The old adversary of the human race. The troublemaker. The tempter. The accuser. And just like we don't have to sin anymore, guess what? We don't have to listen to him anymore. We don't have to listen to him anymore. When he starts coming to us and accusing other Christians, we don't have to listen. Oh, well, that one... Well, that church always does this. It amazes me how, how much people know who have never studied the history, of, the history of different movements and different churches, how much they know about the church down the street. Oh, you know what they teach. Actually, I don't. I'm working Sunday morning. You know what that guy's about. No, I don't. I met him once. He seemed like a nice guy. I choose to believe that everybody who lifts up the name of Jesus is on my team until they definitely prove otherwise. So when the Presbyterians win, we win. Typically a little quieter. When the Episcopalians win, we win. When the Lutherans win, we win. When the Catholics win, we win. When the Baptists win, we win. When the Pentecostals win, we win. We're on the same team. We're not competing. And the, the devil who's been defeated tries to teach us to compete against one another. Instead of taking a city for God. But let me tell you, his power is in the lie. And we now have the truth. And so he is powerless to us. He has been defeated. Just as the Bible says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So too, Satan, where is your victory? I was by a uh, corpse. I went to the hospital for Glenn Douthit. Glenn Douthit was the longtime sexton of Visalia United Methodist Church. You know what a sexton is? Custodian. And he was well beloved at that church. His wife uh, was a dear woman, and Glenn would uh, Glenn would vacuum and clean and fix things and take care of things. He would walk into the sanctuary every morning. Every Monday morning, he'd walk into the sanctuary to clean it after Sunday services. And he would say in a big, deep voice, Good morning, Lord. One, one Sunday, a man had come into church. The doors weren't locked. And he came into church. A street person came into church and was sleeping upstairs. And Glenn walked in and said, Good morning, Lord. And a man from up in the balcony said, Hello. <laughs> oh that almost sent Glenn to an early grave. But but while I was the associate pastor there, Glenn died. And I got to the hospital not more than five minutes after he had passed. And his corpse was still there. His wife was there crying. And I walked in and I thought to myself, this, this thought came into, my, came into my head. Hollow victory, Satan. You got a hollow victory. 
All you got out of this deal was this shell. But you didn't get Glenn. You got nothing. This shell is going to decay. And God will raise it immortal. You got nothing when you went after Glenn. And he gets nothing when he goes after you. Our Messiah has defeated sin, Satan, and death. The Romans, no problem. Every kingdom will bow to Jesus someday. But the biggies that have plagued the human race from beginning, sin, Satan, and death, they're done. They're defeated. That's the Messiah who came into Jerusalem on a colt. And his enemies prophesied about him. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the high priest who, said, who prophesied and said, uh, one man is going to die for all the people? Well, so too now the Pharisees prophesy about Jesus. They say, they say in an exaggerated statement, we can't stop him, the whole world's coming to him. When in fact it's just a crowd in Jerusalem. But you know what? We can't stop him. The whole world's coming to him. Before our eyes, people, the whole world is coming to Jesus. In our generation, the whole world is coming to Jesus. 50,000 to 130 million Christians in China in our lifetimes. We can't stop him. That is the cry of hell. We can't stop him. The whole world is coming to him. Listen to your enemies. And listen to fools, for sometimes they will prophesy God's truth over you. If God can speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through the Pharisees, and he can speak through idiots. Uh, Somebody reminded me the other day of the old TV show, My Favorite Martian. Remember My Favorite Martian? And whenever he would get Martian-y, the little antennas would come up, in his head. Listen, people, keep your antenna up. Antennae? Keep them up. Because God will reveal to you his word. And sometimes it comes through the most unlikely sources. The Pharisees prophesy. Oh, woe is us. The whole world's going to him. You don't even know what you just said. But in the very next section, it begins to be true. Because in the very next section, what happens? Some Greeks, up until now, Jesus has said what? My ministry is to who? The house of Israel, to Jerusalem. There are only a couple occasions where Jesus ministers outside of Israel. But we see in the book of Acts what happens. This gospel begins to explode upon the Greek-speaking world, upon the Greco-Roman world. This gospel begins to spread. And right after the Pharisees prophesy the whole world is coming to them, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover come to Philip and say... We want, to, we want to get in touch with Jesus. The whole world is coming to him. Dear ones, i got to tell you something. I make evangelism far too hard. I think evangelism is, is, is like trying to convince, hard to convince people uh, to come to Jesus. But in fact, that's not it at all. Evangelism is keeping our antenna up, seeing who God is drawing, and inviting them to the party. You know what happened in the Muslim world about, uh, about 30 years ago? Christians started praying for the 1040 window. The, that part of the world, 10 degrees to 40 degrees, um, where most of the world's population lived, right above the equator, 
Africa and Asia, and most of the world's non-Christian, Hindu and Muslim population lived. Christians started praying for the 1040 window. You know what started happening? Stories started coming out of the Muslim world of people having Jesus dreams. Jesus coming to people in their dreams and then telling these people, go find so-and-so who is a Christian and they'll tell you what this dream means. Now that, that's the kind of evangelism I want to do. I want people coming to me and saying, excuse me, do you know anything about Jesus? Could you tell me about Jesus? I had a dream the other night and I'm a little confused. What does this dream mean? But in fact, that's what evangelism is supposed to look like. This world is hungry. This world is seeking Get our antenna up and find out who's looking for God. I remember uh, uh, when I first became a Christian, I worked at this restaurant. It was kind of a the it was it was a two story restaurant. The, the the downstairs was kind of like a nightclub. It had entertainment every night and and it kind of had a cool atmosphere. The upstairs was kind of like a beginning sports bar. It was one of the first restaurants with a big screen TV and. Uh, Peanut shells and sawdust on the floor. Same menu, but two different atmospheres. The restaurant was called the Garrett, and uh, and I worked at the Garrett. And there was uh, and you know we were a bunch of eighteen, nineteen year old kids working at the Garrett. And there was there was one guy there, and he was so cool. He was Carl. Carl was cool. He smoked scented cigarettes, and he dated the prettiest waitress in the place, and he had two years of college under his belt. At 27 or 28, he was moving right along in his academic career. He was a jazz musician. And Carl knew I was a Christian. Carl was hip. He was agnostic. But he would ask me, but he was respectful. And he would ask me questions about my Christian faith. And oh, I was going to get Carl. I was going to save Carl. And one night, Carl and I closed together. Another guy, Larry, asked me for a ride home. So said, yeah, I'll give you a ride home. But Carl started asking me questions. Until 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm answering questions to Carl about Christ. And I'm, you know, I'm going to lead Carl to Christ. And when it gets to the point, Carl's not interested. He's just interested in having a good conversation. Still, I walk away. I'm going to lead Carl to Christ. As we're walking out to the car, this poor guy who wanted to ride home had to wait around for two hours. Now, waiting around for two hours is bad any time, but it's really bad from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. to wait around for a ride and not get a ride home till 3 a.m. But he waited around patiently and quietly and respectfully. And as we're walking out to the car, Larry goes to me, he goes, Hey, can I go to church with you this Sunday? I looked at him and said, no, man, I'm trying to save Carl. <laughs> Have your antenna up, right? Larry's looking. There was another guy who worked at that restaurant, and he was British, and he was a soccer player. By the way, when I said athletes couldn't get girls, if you're a British soccer player in America, that, no, it, it works. These girls would walk into this restaurant, and he was a waiter, and he'd say, what can I get for you, love? And they're like, you? You know? And he, he, he would go home with a different, beautiful woman every night. And I got to admit, even though I was a Christian, there was a little envy there. It's like, man, 
until one night when Larry talked to me and he asked me if I, he could go to church with me. And here's what he said. He said, remember that girl I left with the other night? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah. When we were in bed, making love, he didn't use that phrase, but anyway, clean it up a little bit. He said, all I could think of is my life is so empty. What am I doing this for? And he, he asked if he could go to church with me. The whole world is coming to him. The Greeks are coming to him. Andrew is one of the great figures in the Bible. Peter's brother, Andrew. He only shows up a handful of times in the Bible, but every time Andrew shows up, he's bringing somebody to meet Jesus. Andrew brings Peter to meet Jesus. Peter asks Andrew some questions. Andrew goes, I don't know. Come, come talk to Jesus. He just takes people and says, here, meet Jesus. The boy with five loaves and two fish, who brought him to Jesus? It was Andrew. You know, Jesus says, you feed all these people. Well, Lord, we don't have any food. Well, there's a boy here with five loaves and two fish. Jesus, what do you want to do with this? He brings him to Jesus. And here the Greeks want to see Je Andrew brings him to Jesus. Dear ones, that's, that's, all our, that's all our job is. You work with people who are messed up. You got people in your neighborhood who are messed up. You got people in your families who are messed up. Right? Are you just working around all... Right? And if you're, if you're just the, the least bit kind, people are going to start telling you their problems, right? And if, you, and if you listen and don't give advice too quick, they'll keep going. And then you can surprise them. You can say, well, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Come here. I want to introduce you to somebody. That's all it is. We think evangelism is having to have every answer for the Jehovah's Witness or Mormons to come to our door. No. I don't, I, I don't know of, I know of one person who has ever answered this question positively. How many, I've asked this, how many of you came to Christ through a well-thought-out apologetic approach to the gospel? I only know one person who said yes to that. Then I ask people, how many of you came through Christ through a friend or family member who loved you and introduced you to Jesus in a simple way. And, right? That's how it works. You don't have to be C.S. Lewis. All you have to be is a friend who can invite to the Messiah who's, who is continuing to grow and increase on the earth. So, dear ones, we're going to have communion now. We're doing it a little out of order. You know, Firehouse Church, we have our traditions. We usually have communion before the sermon, but we're going to do it after. Now, I don't want any of you to get upset and write me an email. Why do we do it that way? We've never done it that way before. Um, but, dear ones, I want you just to come and receive communion this morning. And as you do, I want you to remember the phrase, under the mercy. I want you to remember that you are under the mercy that nothing that you have done, no, nothing that you've, however you've messed up this week, has removed you from the covering of his blood. And the devil, neither life nor death, angels nor demons, height nor depth, the present nor the future, 
can separate you from his life and love that he's given to you in Christ Jesus, his Lord. Your Lord. And so come. Just take this and know that the life of Christ, the Messiah, is in you and upon you, and you stand victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And rejoice. Give some, a little sleepy. It must be the warm weather. Give somebody the Holy Spirit elbow, all right? Right there. Just give it to them and say, rejoice. Rejoice. If they're, if they're sitting a little far, yeah, there you go, Roger. You, you got that from Jean? She didn't quite reach you, but there it is. Rejoice. Rejoice. The food of God for the people of God. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Go in that peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.